So, you know when you have three mornings together, first I want to say, Bokir Tov, I want to say, Chodesh Tov, and um, there's, a, there's a dictum in Halakha that says, Hakol Olechacha or Achitum, everything goes according to the ceiling, which means the, the final words, the final blessing, and so I feel that having had the gift of spending the last day of Sivan together yesterday meant that we spent the whole month together. <laughs> And now we have the blessing of starting the month of Tammuz together. So um, to start on Rosh Chodesh and to continue on Rosh Chodesh is, uh, is, a, is, a, good, is a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, you know, when you have three mornings together, the temptation is, who, who do you share? Who of the Hasidic masses do you share? And then you don't want some element of favoritism among the different Hasidic masters, right? But the truth of the matter is you can't not because it's personal. <laughs> So, um, so many of the many of the Hasidic rebbes that we uh, learned yesterday, they are indeed some of the rebbes that are closest to my heart. And I have to share with you, um, one of my soul sisters said to me, "But there was no Rebbe Levietzchak yesterday. <laughs> like, how could you not teach? How could you not teach the teaching of Rebbe Levietzchak?" So I said to him, like, you know, I said it's like Rebbe Levietzchak. He walks in the world as prayer. So to talk about teachings of his on tefillah is. Um, it's almost like redundant. You say Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, and it's already uh, talking about already talking about tefillah because of the way he stood in the world and the way he um, stood in front of the master of the world. So, um, so I thought in Rebbe Levi Yitzchak's honor, I'd actually start with the story of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. <laughs> and um, this is actually the story that just popped into my head right now. So this is the story that we're going to share. There's a story about. Um, you know, he was known as the advocate of Israel, because he was the one who would always stand in front of the master of the world and tell him exactly what has to happen and what needs to happen. And um, so the story is that Rebbe Yitzchak heard that one of his and one of his students, left home after many, many years of marriage. So he calls him in and he said to him, what happened? I never knew that there was a, a problem in your family. And usually I, I know what's happening with my chassidim. And, and, um, and he said, like, I don't understand. So the chassid said to him, I said, you know, and I don't know who, who I'm supposed to ask forgiveness in the room for for the next sentence, but someone, I'm already asking you for forgiveness. So Rebbe Levi says to him, he says, Rebbe Levi says, says, what can I tell you? Said, he said, you know, she's ugly. I'm not proud. She's ugly. I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud to say this, but you know, she's ugly. I wake up in the morning and like I think like maybe I should go back to sleep. It's, she's ugly. So, Rebbe Levi decides to call and call his wife, and um, she walks in in the way I like to tell the tale. He's a Rebbe Levi is a Hasidic Rebbe, but he's also a man, and he takes one look and never. <laughs> She's ugly. Okay? She's got other gifts. That one wasn't one. So, Rabbi Levitzel says to her, like, you know, and she's crying, she's crying, she's heartbroken. And, and he says, like, what happened? So, she says, my husband says, I'm ugly. He's, she, he says to me, I can't be with you anymore because you're ugly. So, Rabbi Levitzel looks at her and, right, he's not, not going to be, not, not going to tell the truth. And he, so, he says to her, um, this is a good rabbinic technique, and what do you think? 
<laughs> and what do you think, right? So um, she says to him, she says, I am ugly. I am ugly. But how is it that he doesn't remember how beautiful I was when we stood under the chuppah together? Today I'm ugly. But how is it that he doesn't remember how beautiful I was when we stood under the chuppah together? And Reb Levi, like if he could, he would have grabbed her, but he couldn't. So he turned around and opened their own Kodesh and Greta Sefer Torah and said, Master of the world, maybe today we're ugly. Maybe today our deeds aren't what you expected of us. Maybe they're not what you wanted of us. But when we received Torah at Hal Sinai, when we stood under the chuppah with you, we were beautiful then. How is it that when you look at us today, you don't see how beautiful we were when we were standing under the chuppah? So, I carry that so many days. I stand in front of the master of the world and I say, you know, maybe, maybe today I'm ugly, but <laughs> there had to be a moment when I gave my life over to you. There had to be a moment at some point when not so ugly. <laughs> so how come you can't see us that way? Hmm? Chesed so, um, so that's to honor Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, and I just want to do one more, close one more piece of business from yesterday, and it's because time was short last, uh, yesterday. Um, time is always short. <laughs> but um, in bringing Rav Soloveitchik into the teaching, I did that for two reasons. One is, it's important, it's important for me that um, you have an experience of how the worlds blend, and how the dialogue between the different schools of thought how they actually, in many ways, if you strip the garments and if you strip the titles and if you strip um, the schools of thought that we perceive them to be separate and distinct, that there's a way for them to come together. And when it comes to learning the, Hasidic, the Hasidim and the Hasidically challenged, they find their way together to ask certain questions that are similar and identical in many ways. And I once said to one of my students, I said, you know, the truth of the matter is that we all share our questions. It's our answers where we walk our separate way. And that's why more often than not, they know that what I offer are questions and not answers. Because we share our questions. And, the, and, and where we defer and where we, where we separate, where our ways separate, is in our answers. So I also want us to be able to see that um, we share questions, and the truth of the matter is, in one way, um, to a certain extent, I felt that Rav that, uh, that Soloveitchik was also sharing a path of an answer in terms of this ascending and descending paradigm. And, um, and the other thing is, also, this week is the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Yorzeit. Um, Thursday will be the 15th year since he left the world, and there are 15 Shira Ma'alot, so every year he's ascending yet another step and um, teaching this week in Drisha so you know that there were 15 steps between Izrat Yisrael and Izrat Nashim so I feel that now he's finally made it up to Izrat Nashim <laughs> finally made it up to the women's section in the Migdash so I feel like we have to honor that as well um, and the story that I wanted to share yesterday was um, there's a story about a Lubavitch couple that came to speak with the Lubavitch Rebbe about adoption and I didn't know this, but it appears that because, because of many different halachot dealing with men and women and relationships, that um, it appears that the Lubavitcher wasn't a great supporter of adoption. 
Um, so a Lubavitch couple came to consult with him about adopting a child, and his response to them was, you need to go talk to Rav Soloveitchik. Because the Rav actually was, was a supporter of, 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 uh, of adoption. So when a Lubavitch couple came to him to ask Lubavitch Rebbe about adoption, his response to them was, you need to go talk to Rav Soloveitchik. So in my heart, there's a way in which the two, the, the two are wed in an, in, an, in, an, in an enhancement and in an embrace of life. So that's my, my cheshbon, my unclosed business from, from, uh, from yesterday is to, to share that with you. Today, we're going to spend our morning completely with the Mashiloch, the Ishbitzer Rabbi. And, um, you know, it's hard to say they all keep me alive, and there are some that keep me alive more than others, and there are some that keep me alive differently than others. So I think I brought show and tell just because I want you to know that this is what I stand behind. <laughs> My uncle said, Do you travel with this on the subway? And then he said, you know, you should get it scanned one day because, you know, if God forbid you forget it on the subway, right, what's going to be? And I said to him, you know, it's not the notes that are in it. It's the learning that's in it. And it's the love that's in it. I said, there are pictures in it and there are dry flowers in it that I received you know, during lear- after learning. And yeah, there are, also, there are also notes and there are also classes and there are also outlines. Um, I said to him, but more than anything... It's the, it's the love, and that can't be scanned. Now, the Mashi Love, I want to give a few words about him, um, and uh, then we'll enter into the learning. Um, he lived in the first half of the 19th century. He lived from 1800 to 1854, 1853, really, but I like saying 1854. Keep him a little bit longer. And um, he was a student of the Kotzko Rebbe. Now, I'm going to do Hasidut 101 in about 20 seconds. So if you quote me, I'll deny everything I just said. But here it goes. Not so bad. The Baal Shem Tov. Are we good? 1700 to 1760. Baal Shem Tov. Unless you're Lubavitch, and then 1698 to 1760. That's good, though. Because that means we had him an extra two years. Um, 1700 to 1760. His successor was Rabdov Ber of Mezrich, the Maggid of Mezrich. We learned a piece yesterday from Tzavah Rivash. The Maggid left the world in 1772. That's considered to be the second generation. So the Baal Shem Tov is considered to be the first generation of Hasidic thought, uh, the Hasidic movement. The Maggid is, is uh, generation number two. And the Maggid is the one who had all the students that f- found their way to different communities and created what we call the Hasidic movement. So, Rabbi Shneur Zalman was a student of the Magyad. Um, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was a student of the Magyad. The Moari Nine was a student of the Magyad. The Ormeir contemporary um, of the Magyad and student of the Magyad. So, and he, really, if you, if you um, there are often maps that what they like to show is that you have a picture of a dot of Mezrich, and then, like in the Karta Atlas, you'll see like all these arrows to all these different communities and that is why in many ways it may be that um, the Baal Shem Tov is the founder of Hasidut and they like to think about the Magid as the founder of the Hasidic movement because of the way his students were the ones that really went out into Europe and created the Hasidic movement. 
Um, one of the students of the Magad, and I'm going to go down one specific lineage uh, of tradition, was Rebbe Elimelech of Lijensk. Um, and Rebbe Elimelech should forgive me, but his, in some ironic way, his brother is more famous than him. So his brother is Reb Zusha. So people are very familiar with the story that Reb Zusha, when he says, when he get up there, I'm not considered a concern what's going to be about Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm concerned when they're going to say, Zusha, why weren't you like Zusha? So that's the brothers, Rebbe Elimelech and Reb Zusha. Rebbe Elimelech is considered to be the, the father of the founder of what we call practical tzadikut. Tzadikut ma'asit. Okay? Meaning to say that the Rebbe became responsible for vitality, children, and livelihood. So at that point, from Rebbe Elimelech on, the perception was that the Rebbe was... Now, some people will talk about the Rebbe as the miracle maker. Right? This is when it comes into play, at this point. So you'll have, for example, until then, you'll have, for example... One of the sources that we looked at yesterday and didn't touch upon, hopefully tomorrow we'll go back to it for a moment, the Or HaMeir, Reb Zev Volf of Jitomir. So you've never heard of Jitomir Hasidim because Reb Zev Volf, even though he left us a book as big as the Mea Shiloh on commentary on the Parshiot and on the Megillot, on the scrolls, um, he didn't have a community because he felt that his work was in the higher realms, not down here. But from, from Rabbi Elimelech on, right, the responsibility of the Rebbe became centralized around the welfare of the Hasidim. Whether it was their spiritual welfare, or their physical welfare, or their family welfare. Um, and that's when the realm of miracles started to, um, to become prevalent or the perception of. Now, it's not to say that the before and there weren't. The Baal Shem Tov is called the master of the good name. And the name is God's name. And the understanding was that's talking about writing emulants, Shemot, with God's name in it. So it's not that there weren't, and the truth of the matter is, the Baal Shem Tov was one of many Baalei Shem. It was a profession. You know, until about, um, until about, I want to say 25 years now, um, there was no, we had no evidence to the existence of the Baal Shem Tov. And that's why it was interesting that there was a lot of parallels between the Baal Shem Tov and Jesus for that reason as founders of movements that we had no external documentation of. And if you read his, history and historians until about 25 years ago, you will find every possible opinion about the Baal Shem Tov. From the fact that he never existed and he was a legend, to he was, you know, a healer like many uh, common healers, um, to the fact that the Baal Shem Tov was the Baal Shem Tov as we know him. And it's only about 25 years ago, there's a professor at Barilan, Moshe Rossman, Mary Rossman, and um, he gained access to the archives of one of the noblemen by the name of Charles Tawiski. Um, and Mezhibuj, where the Baal Shem Tov lived, was under his jurisdiction. And when he went through the archives, he found documentation. He found documentation as to what the city of Mezhibuj was like, what their economy was like. And it wasn't this little hick town in the middle of nowhere, actually. It was a border town, which meant that actually the transition of marketing and so on went through Mezhibuj. So not a small little place in the middle of nowhere. And he also found that there was a registry of taxation. Now we know why sometimes there's a blessing in taxation. Because <laughs> it tells us things in history that otherwise we wouldn't know. And in it it says... Israel ben Eliezer, Israel the son of Eliezer, 
doctor cabalista. So that's where the first time that we had hardcore access to the Baal Shem Tov in terms of his perception in the community, in terms of what he did, in terms of his vocation. And not only that, there were documents that the community supported him and paid his rent for him and for his sons after him. So in terms of his status within the community, also these documents tell us a great deal. So we have the Baal Shem Tov, we have the Magdav Mezrich, we have Reb Elimelech of Lijansk. One of Rebbe Elimelech's students was the seer of Lublin, the Chose of Lublin. And Chose left the world in 1814. Uh, and there's a wonderful description in Buber and his book Gogu Magog, because you know there was a controversy between the Polish Rebbe's and the, and the Russian Rebbe's whether or not to support Napoleon or not. The Polish Rebbe's thought that Napoleon was like Gogu Magog, it was like the end of time, and if you supported him that meant that Mashiach was coming because they'd never seen a human being cross over a continent and wipe it out or conquer it. So in their mind, it was Gogu Magog and right, the next step after Gogu Magog is Mashiach. So the Polish Rebbe supported Napoleon. Ripschner Zalman, for example, was against Napoleon. He supported Alexander because he was afraid of democracy, equality, and for him, Alexander was a religious leader. So if you have a religious leader who understands what a religious life is about, will continue to be able to observe mitzvot. And therefore, he supported Alexander to the extent that he had spies in Amsterdam working for him. <laughs> okay? And this was, an, uh, this was a controversy between the Polish rabbis and the, and, the, um, and the Russian rabbis. So, Buber, in his book, Gogu Magog, he opens with a description and in which he says, in Lublin, right? Um, in Lublin, the miracles were rolling under the table. <laughs> His students, one of the Chose's students, one of the Seer of Lublin, the Chose of Lublin, and you actually can um, visit the Chose of Lublin, is Matseva still stands um, in Lublin. And one of his students was Reb Simcha Bunim. It was, excuse me, the Yudia Kadosh of Shisra. The Yudia Kadosh, the Holy, and he was called the Holy Yid. Now, why was he called the Holy Yid? Because the Seer of Lublin, the Chose, his name was Yaakov Yitzchak. And the Yudia Kadosh, the Holy Yid, of his name was also Yaakov Yitzchak. But you can't use your Rebbe's name in his presence. So, so the Yudia Kadosh, his friends, his colleagues, right, they couldn't call him Yaakov Yitzchak in the presence of the Seer of Lublin because that was the name of the Seer of Lublin. So that's how he became the Yehudi, Yudia Kadosh, the Holy Yid. And he was the one that broke away from his Rebbe. So this tradition of breakaway shuls, it's an ancient Jewish tradition. <laughs> he broke away from his teacher, and, um, and the reason for that was what he felt had happened to the Hasidic movement. Now, if you read, for example, um, the writings of Max Weber on what he calls the institutionalization of charisma, and he talks about the fact that when a movement is founded on charismatic leadership, at some point, there has to be an element of institutionalization that happens for it to sustain itself. Okay, that's why all those breakaway shuls, 20 years down the road, they say, what happened to us? When we broke away, we were so innovative, we were so creative, and now we have a president, we have a vice president, we have committees, we have, what happened to when we would sit around, you know, so-and-so's table, 
over coffee and pretzels and, and have decisions and discussions, and, right? Now everything is, has to go through a committee. So the same thing happened with the Hasidic movement and what he calls institutionalization of charisma. And whatever we looked at yesterday, right? One of the gifts of looking, looking at the early Hasidic teachings is to feel the accessibility and that they're talking to each and every one of us. And the, the work is open and available and accessible to each and every one of us. And those heavens that our prayers are ascending to, those ladders, they don't start at the feet of the Rebbe up to heaven. That ladder, each ladder starts at the feet of each and every one of us. But by the third and fourth generation for sure, the focal point became the Rebbe. And the Rebbe was the one who did the work. He was the one who did all the spiritual work and the, realm, and the realm of the Hasidim was to adhere to the Rebbe. So coming back to a word that we looked at yesterday and touched upon just really briefly, and we could have a year course on each one of these concepts, right? But if what I said yesterday was that the uniqueness and the gift of the Hasidic movement was to move the Vekut, cleaving to God, from the peak of the mystical experience to the beginning, to that first rung of the ladder of ascent open to each and every one of us, it would appear that by the third and definitely by the fourth generation, right, what happened was that the, the, the concept of Dvekut moved from God to the Rebbe. And what, not, I don't, and I want to be careful with alluding to in any way of any element of idolatry and Avodah Zarah and, and, and worship, but it became clear that the, what the Hasidim would do is they would cleave to the, and cling to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe was the one who would do the work in the higher world. Now, um, and I want you to know, in some way, I've, uh, you know, it's really quite amusing and quite funny, and, I, and I'm just sharing this as a, as a way of understanding how this happens. Um, so, there's a rumor in school at Ziegler, where I teach, um, that I have powers. Okay? One student says, claims that I have the glare. Okay. Now, why did this rumor begin? Because a couple of years ago, I think it was three years ago, it so happened that I had a class that were only guys, um, which is not common in Ziggler, but it happened. So there were six guys and myself, and six young men and myself, and I don't remember what happened at that moment, but whatever went on, I looked at them and I said, I said, guys, I said, believe me, I did not get out of bed this morning for this. And at that moment, there was a power failure in the whole building. <laughs> Okay? So, since that moment, <laughs> there are rumors <laughs> that I have powers. <laughs> now, I'm sharing this with you because this is how exactly how stories begin. Okay, so, Purmspiel last year, that I, I'm driving on the 405, which is, you know, six lanes in each direction, bumper to bumper, and I'm in the car and I say, okay, enough of this, and all the cars just move aside. <laughs> I wish I had powers. <laughs> But this is, how it, this is how it starts. Now, it's not to say that the Rebbe didn't have powers. They did. And it's not to say that um, for, those of us in the room, for those of us in the room that hold by alternative or complementary medicine and healing, there are people that have gifts. But there's a difference between having a gift and being a miracle maker. And that is why the Yudi leaves his Rebbe. That's why the Yudi leaves the Chuzay of Lublin. His student, the Yudhya Kadosh, his student, 
was Reb Simcha Bunim of Shisra. He left the world in 1827. So now we're deep into Polish Hasidut, into the Pshischa dynasty. Reb Simcha Bunim's student was the Kotzka Rebbe, among many. The Vorka Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe, the first Ger Rebbe, the Chidusha Harim, the first Vorka Rebbe, the Alexander Rebbe, the, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, known as the Mehashiloch, because the name of his book is the Mehashiloch. They were all students of Reb Simcha Bunim. The Shabbos table I wouldn't mind to be at one day. And this school of Pshischa Ishbitza Kotsk, or I should say Pshischa Kotsk Ishbitza, right, was a school that demanded a reclaiming of the individual work and the individual service. Right? It was a decentralization of the role of the Rebbe and reclaiming of the service of the individual. And the reclaiming of the service individual continuously in front of the Almighty. And the Kutzka Rebbe is known for saying very radical statements such as, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart, nothing more right, silent than a, than a cry. Um, if you daven today because you daven yesterday, why daven? to keep Shabbos this Shabbos because he kept Shabbos last Shabbos why keep Shabbos right we need to say every day is a new day every day is a new day right and every day we need to renew our commitment and renew our devotion and, and our observance today based on our observance yesterday for the Kotzka would be idolatry because we in some way have crystallized our faith We'd, we, some way we crystallize our belief. In some way we crystallize our service of God. So every day we need to look up to the master of the world and ask what's happening. Where are we today? What's this relationship about? What are we meant to be doing? How do we go about this? Now you can understand that there are very strong radical undertones in this. Because there's a difference between looking down at a book and looking up to heaven. Now it's interesting in tefillah we have a relationship between the two. Right? Because in the Masechet Brachot we're taught that when we stand in prayer, when we stand in tefillah, our heart, our eyes should be down and our heart should be up. And our eyes should be looking down, our heart should be looking up. So Davka tefillah has, again, this dual place and this continuous, like, I want to say, a, a, a bend or a crossing over or a gymnastic, a gymnastic movement of spirit. We'll come back to that continuously again and again as to that, I want to say, m maneuver of our spirit that in so many ways pulls us in opposite directions continuously. Right? Because on the one hand, yeah, you have to look up to God when you're davening. On the other hand, the greatness of it, yeah, you have to look down. <laughs> you know, Rabbi Yitzchak has this frame, uh, and the Meshilach has this phrase called Anava Be'usha, which is improper modesty, improper humility. So Rabbi Yitzchak and the Meshilach would say, if you wake up in the morning and say, how can I daven Shacharit this morning? Like, who am I to stand in front of the master of the world and say, Baruch Atah? Who am I to say, blessed are you? 
So they would say that that is improper modesty, improper humility. You know, one of my favorite, one of the favorite sayings of, of my Rebbe Reb Shlomo was, how could you not? When you ask them whether to do something or not, how could you not? Why? If, that, if the thought comes to you, if the thought comes to you, if the desire comes to you, there's a reason. There's a reason. Why didn't I think about that? And God willing, by the end of the day, there'll be a Xerox here of an article um, that I wrote um, a few years ago, Rech to Shabbat Candles. And it's about, I light the Shabbat candles of Rech to the Piyasetna Rebbe's daughter who perished in the Shoah and the Holocaust. And there's a reading of, a teaching of his um, on Parshat Chukat, which is coming up, uh, coming up soon, Chaye Sarah, where he talks about Sarah standing in the world and how that connects to the lighting of the candles. But when I came to him and said, I want to, write the, I want to begin to light the Rebbe's Shabbat, daughter's Shabbat candles, and then I said to him, but who am I to do that? And he said, but, who, but how could you not? Like, I didn't think about lighting her candles. I didn't think about perpetuating her, perpetuating her Shabbat light. You did. You have to do it. So you can hear here the beginning of what is perceived to be very strong antinomian voices. Antinomian, nomus halacha, law. So antinomian would be voices that are against the law. In the realm of looking up to heaven and saying, Master of the world, what do I do now? Versus looking down into the book. There are overtones of that. Now, what will save the Mashadach from A, there's a heavy tone of antinomianism in his, in his teachings. There's also a radical... Um, oh, I'm losing a word in English. Determinism. I wonder why I lost that word. <laughs> right? For the Mashiach, for the Ishbitzer Rebbe, the, verse, the, the Mishnah in, in Avot says, um, All is in the hands of heaven, except for the awe of heaven. Except for. And many interpretations will hold on to that except for as, the, as opening the world to free will. But for the Mashiach, for the Ishbitzer Rebbe, that wouldn't be true. And he would say, All is in the hands of God even the fear of God. And then we have to deal with the Pandora box of free will and where that happens. And, and he will go as far as saying, you know what? Free will is an illusion. Now, it's an illusion that we live by. It's an illusion that defines our life and defines our religious experience. But if you had asked him the ultimate ultimate, whatever the ultimate ultimate truth looks like, he would say free will is... It's an illusion. And any manifestation in the world of God is God's will for it to manifest. Now, with that, I know that as many people are sitting here, there are about 15 comments running through your head right now because that's a mouthful. Now, you can understand because of these two elements, which in some way um, are an outgrowth of what it means to put the individual and their unique relationship with God into the center, how that can be. Now, you also need to understand that there are going to be checks and balances how to keep one within the tradition and what that looks like. So, I'll come back to a comment that I made yesterday morning, and that is, right, that the, for the Hasidim, the, the Sidul was the beginning of the conversation. Right? I'll say here, 
for the Ishbitzer Rebbe as well, the same would be true about Torah and Mitzvot. It's the beginning of the conversation. And when you see this phrase that will come back in his sources time and again, Ritzon Hashem Yitvarach, God's will, right, that is the realm that transcends the realm of Torah Mitzvot. It doesn't negate it, it doesn't eradicate it, it doesn't erase it. But it adds another dimension. Now, you can also understand because of that why the book was burned, why the book was destroyed, why it was hard for many, many years to even find the book in publication. Because it was, it was termed to be dangerous. Now, I say this to my students very often. I said, the Mashiach is a book that if you're looking for a way out, if you're looking for a way out of observance, if you're w- looking for a way not to dive in the morning, if you're looking for a way to walk into that McDonald's and have a cheeseburger, milkshake, and fries, my fantasy for 40 years. <laughs> I don't know why. Despite the fact that I grew up right in, in Rehovot and then in Yerushalayim, my whole adult life, I think that being normal <laughs> is a milkshake and a, and, a, and a cheeseburger and fries at McDonald's. <laughs> like I think like I'll never die normal because I'll never have had that opportunity. <laughs> Right? <laughs> That's what I've been told. <laughs> but clearly, I don't know how to say this, but obviously your no big deal is a big deal to me. <laughs> well, that's what they say. They say to me, if you're going to go for it, like go for a high trip, go for like something like, you know, like what you're saying and like some cream sauce and whatever. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm looking for the, the human, the lowest human, de- you know, denominator of what it means to be normal. And to me, that's what it is. <laughs> right? The most common denominator of what it means to be human in the Western civilization of, the, of, of North America is to pay 99 cents for a cheeseburger. <laughs> right? So I'm saying, if you're looking for an excuse to do it, the Mashiach will avail you of it. He'll tell you that that thought came to you because it's God's will, and there's never a lobster that was born a lobster, but it's really meant to be Jewish, and therefore, if you eat it, you'll elevate it. <laughs> I can walk through this very well. <laughs> I said, but if you're looking for a way in, he'll keep you in. If you're looking for a freedom of spirit that will enable you to adhere to the details of the action, he will avail that of you. So when you have a person, for example, Nelson Mandela, who says, or Natan Sharansky, who said that they were never incarcerated and that they were always free behind bars, right? the Meshulach would say that about Turan Mitzvot. And that's where our perception comes in. So, where Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, when he uses et la'asot la'ashem heferu toratecha, and it's a time to do for God, and therefore we will, heferu toratecha, the pshat means they will annul your mitzvot, which is why we wrote down the old Torah, right? For the Meashiloh, heferu comes from the word pri, to there's fruit. So sometimes, like the Gemara says, bitulashal Torah yisuda, sometimes the breaking of a law is the creating of the law. We have paradigms of 
פיקוח נפש דוחה שבת. We have paradigms, right? Uh, if someone is in life danger, then, you know, then it's a mitzvah to get into the car. Right? But those are very far, far apart and very specific. For the male shiloh, it's, it's a daily question. Now, ultimately, the question is, me and my friends, we always have this ongoing conversation, like, what did he do? Now, what did he, like, at the end of the day, what did he do, like, with this freedom? And the truth of the matter is, it's hard, because there's a part of me that wants to say, he had to do something. Because to have this kind of understanding of what that kind of freedom looks like, he had to have experienced it. But on the other hand, the stories about him don't give me evidence of that at all. Right, the stories about him are actually that when he, when he would put on his left shoe before his right shoe, because you know you're supposed to put on your right shoe before your left shoe, when he would put on his left shoe before his right shoe in the morning, he'd fast that day. So it's hard to think if that is the if that is the level of piety that he held on to, it's hard to think about it out, outside of the realm of the thought, not and not in the realm of action. And there are many ways where I like to see the parallel actually between the Mea Shiloh and Rav Kuk. In that expansive philosophical freedom that did not in any way draw them to stray from the meticulous observance of Halakha. And it's actually when your mind and your soul and your heart are free, then you're also free to adhere to the detail of Halakha without feeling it to be oppressive, limiting, restricted, in any manner. Yes, yes. I think, that, that I, think, I think what they're asking for is what I would call spiritual maturity and religious maturity. Right? Where is it that we learn to gain access to the books? Where is it that we, we learn and we, and we find our, our voice? Where is that? Right? That we um, have that relationship with God that enables us to actually communicate directly and to be able to then be part of a community. Right? And to, and to exercise our free will from the inside. Right? Not from the outside. Right, like walking away is the easy solution. And you never walk away. That's also the truth of it. Right? Because that, coming back to, um, if you were here yesterday morning, right? So when I asked my student, do you daven? And his response was, but I don't have tefillin. Right? And he had not put on tefillin in years. But when he hears the word daven, he had no freedom to think about actually praying. Right? Because daven means feeling. So even when you walk away, you don't walk away. My brother, God bless him, right? my older brother is an atheist. He went through, I can tell you, yeshiva tichonit, high school, yeshiva, right? He went through hezda, right? And he's an atheist. And when my nephew was born, who's now in his 20s, like what would he sing to him? The sudash sheet songs from the yeshiva. I'd walk by, he's putting my nephew to sleep, right? And he's singing the Sudashishi songs from the yeshiva. So, anyone who thinks that they're walking away means that they're free? Not for a moment. You know, God is like a, I like, I like to say at times, God is like an envious mistress. Holds on and doesn't let you go. 
So, but that's what I'm saying. So, what I feel that they're offering is, in this extreme school of thought, they're offering a way to stay inside. They're offering a way to be at home and free simultaneously. So, the Mashadok you'll find is very, very loaded on the personal, what I call the personal God talk. Because who you're accountable to continuously is the master of the world. And the only one, like part of the challenge here is for a community is, it's almost impossible to create a community in that way. Well, what are the guidelines? If everyone has a direct line, what are the guidelines? So these are part of the tensions and part of the struggles in what this school of thought enables. Right? But I want to say in some way, when dealing with tefillah, you say, where did tefillah go this morning? <laughs> but when dealing with tefillah, I feel that the same questions stand. Right? Has tefillah b'tzibur, for example, taken away our notion of tefillah? Has communal prayer taken away our notion of, of prayer? Right? Like, how do we, how, how do we, how have we learned, or how are we challenged in cultivating a personal prayer life? And that shul has taken over so much of how we define what prayer is. So I would say the same kinds of struggle will be, will be able to identify within the context of Fila itself as well. Yeah. So I can thank meeting those schools in high school for strengthening my personal Oh, completely. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely, definitely, yeah. No, I, that's a great question. Libby, you're on. Like, exactly that. How does radical autonomy, has radical determinism support radical autonomy? Okay, thank you. That's welcome to the, the pretzel. Right? You know, I have a student who used to call the Piacetzin Rebbe the pretzel Rebbe because she couldn't say Piacetzin, but she could say pretzel. But I think the Mashidov is the pretzel Rebbe. Because what he's asking of us is exactly that kind of sophistication. And that, and willing to live in the dichotomy, willing to live in the challenge, willing to live in the cognitive dissonance, willing to live in the unknown. But how many do you gain in that process? Right? I don't know. I don't know. And what I will say also, based on your comment, your name please? Rina. Rina. Um, what I will also say about your comment is, it's told the following way, that when, a, when someone will come to the Tanzer Rebbe, you know, today you're born into a Hasidic community and that's how you're born. In the Hasidic community, like, intermarriage is if a Tanzer marries a Lubavitch, you know, or, you know, or, or a Lubavitch marries a Belzer. I mean, like, this is, you know, right, that's intermarriage outside the community. You know, in Slonim, like, they'll tell you, like, how many generations they've all married in, in, into Slonim. And that's like, you know, that's like, Sfaradita ho, you know, it's like a pure Sfaradic Jew, right? So it's the same thing with Hasidim. Um, it's told of the, of the Tzantar Rebbe that if you came to him and he wasn't your Hasid, he would tell you, you're not mine. My way in the world is not mine. You know, when people ask me, how did I meet Reb Shlomo? Well, I tell them that at Matan Torah, I was three years old, and I couldn't see, so someone was standing in front of me, and I pulled on his dress, and I said, excuse me, Mr., I can't see. You know, and turned around, picked me up, and put it on his shoulders, and that's how I saw it. 
Now what that means is that the revelation was, was similar. Right? And like all the students, we were all sitting on his shoulders. Look how big shoulders. Right? So the sons of Rebbe would say, you're not my shalosh neshama. You don't come from my root soul. Right? My way in the world is your way in the world. And he'd send him on his way. And um, it's told to the Kumana Rebbe that if you came to him, he would say, you know, at times he would say, welcome home. But at times he would say, you're not, my, you're not mine. But let me tell you who is. And he'd send him. Right? You know, there are students at school. So I'm a Mishpah Ruchanit of rabbinical school. I'm a spiritual mentor of rabbinical school. Now, it's true that the curriculum is built in a way that you cannot be ordained at the school of rabbinic studies without learning with me. There's a mandatory seminar for fifth years that it's with me. So you, you can't, by definition, be ordained without learning with me. But you can get till fifth year without talking to me. And I know that the language I speak, the way I walk in the world, is not for all my students. Thank God there are 80 students and thank God there's a faculty, there, there's a dean, there's an associate dean and an assistant dean and there, everyone has their voice of Torah. What I tell my students is like, you need to find a teacher, not me. Please, not me. <laughs> right? But you need to find a teacher. So when thinking about how many we lose and how many we gain, we lose them to what and to where. Right? And so that's part of the... And I'd say for some people it's not a way. Right? For some people, they need, to, they need to walk what's called the straight and narrow. They need to... And we also need to know when, you know, when we need to be asking questions and when we need to do, sometimes we have to walk the straight and narrow and not ask too many questions. And we move in our lives through periods like that. Right? I just went through a period where I didn't learn for a bunch of months. Did not open a safer. I learned other things, but did not open a safer. Uh, I just needed. I needed. I needed quiet. I needed that kind of quiet in my head to grow in a different way before I could come back to it. So I didn't kick it. Right. I closed it, kissed it, and I said, "I'll be back," but I need space. So those are choices that we can make, and that's so it's not clear to me in the gaining and the losing, losing to where, losing to what, what that process looks like, where they're going, what they need. And how do we hold our hearts open when we see someone who's walking? Now I'm going to say one more sentence and we're going to go into the Mashiach. There's a Gemara there's that says, A person does not move their finger, raise their finger below, unless there's a crier who calls it out above. Okay, talking about determinism here. Okay? There's not an action we do. There's not a chew that we make. There's not a wink that we do. There's not a smile. Nothing without it being called out. So the Zohar asks, well, what happens when a person's about to, to do an avera? When a person's about to transgress? Well, then what happens? So the Zohar quotes a pasuk from Yeshayahu, which has become my, um, actually my home in the Nevi'im, in the Ketuvim. Um, and that is, the one who creates the one who makes a, a path a road in the ocean and in gushing waters away which means you don't see the step ahead of you the minute you take it the road behind you closes it's a new way home it's a different way home. It's an unpaved way home. 
So that stays with me with that challenge, right? What do I know? Right? And that's what he would say. On the one hand, how can you not? On the other hand, what do I know? How do I, what do, how do I know where that person is going to end up in five years from now? How do I know where they're going? And I'd say he, what, we, what we would be asked is to keep our hearts open because maybe there's something there that we can't imagine, we can't understand, we don't know what it is. That's a hard, that's a mouthful, it's a heartful, it's a mindful. That's true, but that's the challenge. And I think that demands of us, right, to be greater than ourselves at times. I think parents, you know, parents, older siblings, they've, teachers, have experienced this in different ways with your children, with your students, with your younger siblings, right? Sometimes, I've got to say, with your parents, <laughs> right? We've seen that in relationships. Okay. What, you have, what I've prepared for you today is a packet, bless you, of sources, which again we're going to do, we're going to clear the front table here and we're going to do again, you're going to walk by, one through six. Um, actually, it's only one through five today. But I will ask you actually to look at the sources um, in order, okay, and in progression. I want to introduce for a moment the first source um, because it has um, heavy Kabbalistic overtones, so I don't want you to get lost there. And then I think you'll be fine. You'll be fine. There's translations. Today, there's translations for everything. And um, I'm proud to say that everything is actually on the same page. So you have the English, you have the Hebrew, um, throughout. Um, Rashi script, Rashi script. You know, Hasidic commentaries are primarily in Rashi script, I think for two reasons. One is to be obnoxious. No, whatever is being reprinted today, in the last 15, 20 years, why is it being reprinted in Rashi script, if not to in some way keep the books closed? Right, because there's, there's not a technical barrier, because really there are only five letters that are different between Rashi script and regular square script. But in the mind, it's a different language. You know, and I remember the moment I had to say to myself, okay, Feingolfin, from now on, you're going to live your life in Rashi script. I'm like, I flunked Rashi in third grade, don't do this to me. <laughs> So that's like number one, I think in some ways to keep the books a little bit closed. And on the other, it's to maintain the integrity of the text in terms of it being a commentary. That the teachings are commentaries. And what we're learning is a commentary on Sukhim. Because the truth of the matter is they will read the Hasidic commentaries. The Hasidic Rebbe's will read a Pasuk, will read a Midrash, will read a Gemara, will read Rashi with the same level of, of understanding and interpretation as they do a pasuk from the Torah. Right? So you can see a Hasidic commentary writing on a Rashi and, and breaking down a Rashi the same way they would break down a, a pasuk from the Torah. The same kinds of questions, the same kinds of hermeneutic questions that they would ask on a verse, on a pasuk, they'll ask on a Rashi or they'll ask on a Midrash. They won't create that distinction. So that's why I also think that it's in Rashi script to keep us within the context of, even though you open a book that doesn't have psukim, you ha open a book that's complete commentary, that we remember that it's commentary. So um, the first teaching is going to open with, and I'm not going to listen to me, and you'll find it in the inside. And it's on Parshat Shlach Lecha, so we, today is Tuesday, we're still connected, <laughs> right? And he says, Ita kadosh, tlat olamim The master of the world has three worlds. Okay? A world which is concealed and not known. 
a world in which he's concealed, sometimes known and sometimes not known, and a world in which he's concealed and known. Okay? Now, in the Mishnah, we'll see a Mishnah that tells us, in, again in Avot, about the three crowns. Ketel Torah, Ketel Malchut, right? Ketel Kehuna. Three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of the priesthood, and the crown of, of royalty, of kingdom. And the Zohar, in, in one of the interpretations of the Ten Sfirot, of the Tree of Life, the highest Sfira is Ketir, is the crown. And that's the Sfira, the emanation of God that we can't even speak about. The, out of the ten, the three top ones are considered to be intellectual, Chabad, Chesed, Bina, and Dat, Chokhmah, Bina, and Dat, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, where Ketir is hovering over and sometimes you'll see Ketel and you won't see Dot and those two are the interchangeable ones the lower seven are connected to the attributes of our, of our um, behavior Chesed, loving kindness Gvura, strength Tiferet, harmony, Netzach, eternity Hod um, beauty, Yisod, foundation Machut, uh, royalty, kingship this world in one of the understanding, ke- understandings, Ketil, the crown, which is that which we cannot talk about, Ketil, has three heads to it. The one which is concealed and not known, which means there's zero we can, we can comprehend. We have no language for it. I'd say if we were lining ourselves with the, with the Midrash that says, well, what did we hear at Matan Torah? One opinion says we heard the two first divot. One opinion says we heard only the Anochi, the first word, Anochi. Right? One opinion says we, all we hear was a silent olive. Right? I'd say the known, the, the concealed within and not known is even before the olive. Right? And, and then we can talk about the concealed within, known and not known. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and that would be the olive because we ha- don't have the sound to it. And then concealed within and known would be the anuchi. I am, because we have a full word. And then I look at the seven lower fields actually as the ten com- as the two or the other two commandments or maybe Chochmah bin Andat as the two commandments and then the other lower ones as all the ten commandments so that would be a way of thinking about it and he is going to use these three heads these three crowns as a way of entering into the realm of Tfilah okay you'll see through the sources there's a progression there's a relationship between them. So that's why verses yesterday where I said start on page 1, start page 7 or 4 or whatever. Today I'm, I'm asking start at 1 and move your way through. It's 10.38. We'll come back at 11.15. We'll do some more learning together. Okay? Now I'm going to put this out in piles like yesterday. The rule will claim I would align to um, take one at a time. I'll put them out and then clearly also... Um, my senses are that we'll need more Xeroxes. Okay. Excuse me? <laughs> no, no. One's gentle before, one's gentle after. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the word that I chose... Um, to think about when looking at the Mashiach is the word revelation, right? 
that today we're talking about a moment of revelation and how tefillah functions as revelation. And in many ways, I'm hoping that in some way you, you could see through the sources that there is um, this aha moment in many different directions. There's a message being portrayed to us and being offered to us in many different ways. And there's a way in which, um, I'd say in this image, Tefillah here will be continuously functioning as, a, um, as an intake or as a mirror. A mirror for our soul, a mirror for our spirit, a mirror for our, a mirror for our psyche. Um, a Rorschach test at times. A, um, an indication of where we stand vis-a-vis our relationship with God. So, um, and for the Meashilach, for the Ishbet this would be a crucial way of actually taking some kind of inventory as to where we are at any given moment. The first image that he brings is, is as I said, um, using this paradigm of the three heads, or the three, the three ways that God manifests in the world. And really, in many ways, what I'd like to offer also offer is the image of, um, of postcards. Um, and that is, you know, I always, I always say that the master world sends us postcards all the time. They just don't appear as rectangular with picture on one side and a few words and a stamp on the other side. They come in the form of people, of shapes, of, um, of you know, I'm driving to school one morning and there's a, on the 405 there's a double bus. And I pick up my head from the road for a second and I see this bus as I'm about to pass it. And it says... Um, I'm big and beautiful, pass me with kindness. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, thanks, I got the message. <laughs> right? It was like such a, and I walked into school, I was like smiling the whole day because I got a postcard on the way to school in the morning, you know. Um, and whoever walked by me in the, in the corridor, I'd smile and think, pass me with kindness. <laughs> so, in many ways, our sidul functions in that way, and our prayer life functions in that way. And it's really not something that we turn on and turn off for those in the room, that Davan Shacharit Minchan for those in the room, right, so that may, may three times a day, or twice a day, or once a week, or once a month, or once a year, right? There's a way in which that book called Tzidul, or our heart, calling out to the Almighty, tells us or can illuminate where we are, what's happening on the inside, what, what our real internal voice is. And we're also left clearly with multiple questions. So the image that he brings here is, right, and I think in the first section, what we're left with is what happens when we don't want to dive in, whether that's because God's there already or because it won't help, right? And I think that that's a, that's a tricky place to be in uh, truth be told, and, um, and then I guess the question would be, what does one do in that moment? But the first thing is to be able to say to myself, okay, this is the postcard, this is the message, this is the way the master of the world, is making a statement or showing himself, showing herself in my life right now. And where am I? And I may not know. So, therefore, the question stands, 
And I want to say what the Meshach has to offer more than anything is the questions in the realm of doubt. Right? One of the core concepts that he will continuously hold us, uh, hold us accountable is the realm of doubt. And I think that in some of the, some of the conversation, in our morning session of the morning, right, was the question, well, how do we know? How does one know? How can you know? And we can't. And in many ways, the, um, the, 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 again, the, the challenge here is, on the one hand, you can talk about radical determinism, right? But there's radical autonomy, and what's left in between the two is the not knowing. <laughs> there's a phrase in the Gemara that I mentioned, and I hold on to forever. Um, I learned it in its core from Rabbi Mickey Rosen of Blessed Memory. The Chulei Hai Ve'ulai. And all this, and maybe. Right? The Chulei Hai You don't know. We don't know. We don't know. So the truth of the matter is, on the one hand, yeah, there are moments when the prayer comes because we know we, just, we have to. It, and it flows, and it comes. And then there are moments when I feel shut down. And is that shutting down because I'm standing in a moment of, there's no need for words. You know, there's silence, which is a silence of void, and there's silence, which is a pregnant silence. And that, I think, is the challenge to know what silence am I experiencing right now? Is this void or is this pregnant? Are you silent in my presence because you have nothing to say to me? Or are you silent in my presence because you have so much to say that there is nothing to say? And even that one rose, coming back to yesterday in terms of the two dozen roses or the one rose, even the one rose is, is shortchanging what I really want to be saying. That's going to be the tension here. But what I think he's offering us is to say that the question is the revelation. The question, God reveals himself through the question. Because if you are, um, if you are um, the one who has to daven, right, then that's no problem. Then actually that day you wake up in the morning and things are easy because you wake up, you daven, you're good. But if you find yourself in a situation where the davening is not there, then the ultimate question is, why is it not there? Is it not there because I'm so close, or is it not there because I'm so far? Yeah, question. But you're going to have to talk loud. By virtue of my answer, you'll hear the question. Okay, so I think your comment is coming is really is 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 uh, shadowing some of the earlier concerns that we expressed, right? And when I said that you can use the mashadoch as your door out, and you can use the mashadoch as your door in, right? Because there are two possible responses to not feeling like davening, right? One is to say, well, if I don't feel like davening, clearly I'm the person that it's not going to help. So what's the point? And you walk away, right? Or you could say, I'm so close and intimate. Right now, I would say that that's a reason to say thank you. There's a reason to daven for that. <laughs> right? 
Now, it may be that I'm being a little bit facetious here, but what I'm saying is, though, that the question can still lead you to Davin, right? And the truth of the matter is that even if I woke up and, right, woke up either morning or woke up consciously, in my consciousness, and said, oh, I'm not davening because it's not going to help, I still daven. Right? Because there are two different things here. Right? One is my halakhic obligation. So if we're talking about structured tefillah, one is my halakhic obligation. And I would say that that really is irrelevant. <laughs> and the other is that personal prayer. Right? And then personally, I would probably say, you know, God, I don't care. I have a need to talk. You know, being personal again for another moment, and I... My brother is a very quiet person, and I love my brother very much. He's a very quiet person in many ways. And for many years, I would talk to him even though he wouldn't talk to me. Right? Now, it wasn't that he wasn't talking to me. He just wasn't talking to me. Right? But I would continuously share information with him. I would tell him what was going on in my life. I would tell him what I would be thinking about. I would tell him what I was doing. Why? Because I wanted to make sure that we weren't strangers. I wanted to make sure from my side that even if he wasn't talking or he wasn't sharing about what his work was like, what he was reading, what he was doing with his life, that that didn't give him the right to define the relationship from my part, from my side. And if, as long as I did not expect a response, right? If I wasn't, I wasn't talking, saying, if I just talk for, for long enough, at some point he'll say, oh, you know, I also. As long as there was no expectation of that, but it was truly my understanding of what I wanted of the relationship, we were fine. Because he never shortchanged me by not responding. Because that wasn't how it was set up. It was set up, I want to talk. I, and here, Lahavdil, right? I want to pray. So it may be, God, that you're saying, you know, the um, my office hours are tomorrow, but right now I'm standing at your door. So again, I would say that that's always going to be continued to the challenge. What it does offer me here, coming back, is at least I know that I need to be asking a question. I, need, I know that the sidul here or the tefillah here or the, the desire to pray or the lack of desire to pray is telling me something about how I feel. Now the truth of the matter is I think in many ways we aspire to gain insight as to what's happening inside of us. Dreams, for example, is one way. Right? For those of us that are in the room that have a vivid dream life, then they look to their dreams to understand, to read them, as, an, as some kind of postcard to the internal life. What the Mashilah is telling us is there are other venues to find out what's happening inside. There are other venues to be some kind of um, God thermometer, Godmometer, <laughs> right? And that is how Tfilah reverberates in our life. How this dialogue or monologue or trialogue, how many, how many, how many voices that you use in your engagement with the divine, how they manifest. But to look at the realm of tefillah in our lives as telling us something about what's happening inside of me, what's happening inside of us.
tells me something about the relationship. tells me something about God's presence in my life. Sometimes the Siddur weighs a ton. Sometimes it's like a coming home. You know, sometimes the Nigun is like, oh my God, I just can't hear that one more time. It just feels so distant. And sometimes it's where I can rest my body, my soul, and my being. And that's also true. So I also want to say, it doesn't always mean that the alienation is beyond the moment. That's also true. It can be a very temporary alienation, a very temporal moment in its feeling. And we can go beyond that. Now, he would also ask of you to do exactly that. Right? The flip of that would be, um, the flip of that would be not to say, well, if I didn't daven yesterday, I'm not going to daven today. Um, and I'll give you actually an example, and then I'm gonna, we're going to progress to one, one of the next sources. Um, shortly after I arrived in Los Angeles, I found myself getting up one morning and, to, and started davening, um, started davening Shemunai, so I realized I was, in, I was in the wrong place. Now, what does it mean I was in the wrong place? I found myself in a situation of the following. Standing up, the eventual said, led me to one of two places. One was, oh my God, you're standing in the presence of God. That became so awesome, so awe-full, that I couldn't daven. If you go back to Rav Shnur Zalman from yesterday, oh Hashem Mamash, God's light is in your mouth. God's light is in these words that you're uttering. Then there comes a moment that the magnitude of the experience does not avail you to actually say anything. So I found myself when I stood, I, I found myself one day in one of two places. Either the magnitude and the awe of tefillah was so great that I couldn't daven, I couldn't say another word, or I opened my eyes and said, what are you, an idiot? You're standing in front of a wall. There's a wall in front of you. There's nothing else. And I found myself for a moment vacillating between ridicule and awe. And neither of those availed me to daven. Because the awe wouldn't allow me to open my mouth. And the ridicule said, what are you, an idiot? Go have a cup of coffee. So what I did was, I sat down. I sat down. Why? Because the sitting contained me in a way that kept me away from the awe and away from the ridicule. Now what it did was it availed me to daven. But for two years, now I know, right, that sitting is not something that um, stands between a person's obligation to daven. There are things that are ma'akev b'tfilah. There are things that are hindrances in tfilah. And actually sitting or st- standing is not one of them. Right? So if you can stand, if you're, I don't know, on a boat, on a, whatever the situation is, Right? If you can't stand, then you put your two feet together sitting and you daven. So I knew that it wasn't a hindrance in davening. So for two years, I actually would daven shmonayasle sitting down. Now on the one hand, it availed me to daven. On the other hand, I had to, every time I davened, every time I davened, every time I came to shmonayasle, I had to say to myself, why are you not getting up? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you lazy? Or because you want to daven? 
every time I had to ask myself that question. And never knew from one shacharit to minchan, from one minchat to shacharit, what was going to get me to stand again. That's the kind of process, that's the kind of questioning that the Mashiach here is offering us. He's asking us to have a conversation with our prayer life and to allow it to speak to us. To allow it to tell us something about ourselves that we may not be aware of. Yes? Okay, so this is where I'm. This is where we're challenged. Okay, why are we challenged? Because I want to say yes and I want to say no. Right on the metal level, I want to say yes, you're correct, and on the other metal level, I want to say no because you would never not daven. Right, that's going to be the challenge. He would never not daven. And I think that what he would ask of us is, but I think if you ask him as an individual, I'm silent here. My, my question is less, the key job is not job, maybe it's definitional because I don't, I'm not grounded with a very small educational background. Mm-hmm. When you say job, are you saying as the C word, every word, as it's written, three steps forward, Great. So, in that way, I want to thank you because I think ultimately what we're, at, what we're being asked to do here is to expand the phrase that you've said, prayerful life. And what I think we're, what we're being pushed to is to understand that Sidul is part of our prayer life. It's not the totality of our prayer life. So, the truth is you can fulfill your obligation to Davin without having this kind of conversation with God. Right? That, and that could be a missed opportunity. In other words, if you don't pause for a moment and, and, and do a, a daven check-in before your daven, you will fulfill your halakhic obligation to daven. You will miss out on the dialogue with God in term, and the insight as to where you are. Right? Because what he's saying here is that our davening life in some way is a barometer to our relationship with God. And those are two separate things. So I would say that you could, you know, one of the most radical teachings, you're pushing me, you're pushing me. Um, move, to, move to the last page for a minute. <laughs> one of the most radical teachings in the Mashiach appears in section, source number nine. And I actually brought it this time primarily for the last few lines, lines 12 through 14. But I'm going to hold on for a moment. Your name, please? Moshe, right? Um, I'm going to hold on for a moment because of Moshe's comment because I think it's really important. Like it's it's impossible, inconceivable, to learn to spend a morning with a mashiach and not see this. The pasuk is in bechokotai telechu. Okay, so you're on the last page, source number nine. 
if you walk in my statutes, im, now the, the parasha, theoretically you would have thought it would have begun, Vaydaber Hashem el Moshe Limor, Bechukotai Telechu. God speaks to Moshe and says to him, you shall walk in my statutes. But the, actually it begins with, im Bechukotai Telechu, if you walk in my statutes. And he says, im Hulashon Tzafik, if, is the language of doubt. Because who knows if they fulfill the Torah according to the depth of God's will. And skip to line number nine. This is why it says there's a language of doubt. And line number nine and ten and eleven are like earth shaking in my eyes, to be honest, and in my soul, and keep me humble, honest, and completely um, in that pretzel state, as I call it. She'af she'adam nizhar, line number 10, lekayem kol ha-shuchan aruch. Even if a person is cautious to, and observes all of the shuchan aruch, all of the code of law, adayinu b'safek im kiven l'omek ratzon ha-shem idvarach. He is still in doubt whether he aligned himself, herself, with God's will. Because God's will is the deepest depths who can find him. Right? And the challenge of the Mashiach is going to be continuously to move between those two voices. Right? You can observe, you can, from the moment you wake up in the morning until the moment you wake, go to sleep at night, you can, every moment will be an opportunity to observe the halacha. And as you can live a halachic life, and still, never align yourself for a moment with God's will. Okay? Now, the place where I think we can, we can uh, begin to touch upon that is, is, for example, in the realm of music. There are musicians that are impeccable in their technique and have no understanding of music. Right? Impeccable in their technique. But their soul, their life, is not there. That's the Ratzon Hashem Yidbarach. It's not imbued with God's will. And yes, sometimes, sometimes a yes is a no. And sometimes a no is a yes. My students have this joke among themselves. I'll say, I'll often use the phrase shkoch. Sometimes it means very nice. Sometimes it means shut up. <laughs> right? And there was a wonderful moment there. One of our, that one of our seniors, we were the group together are learning, and um, one of the, I think it was the first years, who said something, and I said shkoch, and he smiled, and the other one said, she meant shut up, not nice. <laughs> right? So there's an element of intimacy also that comes with, right, knowing when a yes is a no and when a no, a yes is a no and a no is a yes. You know, I have a girlfriend who says, my nightmare is I have a child who always does what I tell them. I'm waiting one day to be called to school because they, they misbehaved. I'm waiting. Just my nightmare in the life is I have a child who is obedient. I need it once, I need him to come home late. And once I need him to get a low grade in school. Once I need him to be thrown out of the class. And then once to play hooky. I need once to do something. 
So this is like the mouse to the world. It's like because I want to say it. There's a place in my like where does trust come into this dialogue and where does trust come into this relationship? That's a piece of this conversation as well. You know, will you still love me tomorrow? Like can I can I say no and still come show up the next day? Or do I really know that that I'm really not meant to be here right now? I'm really not meant to do this. Maybe tomorrow, yes. Maybe next year, yes. Maybe my next lifetime, yes. But not right now. Because life does take its toll, right? And there are different, and there are consequences, right? It used to be the kids were punished. Now there are consequences, right? No one's punished, consequences. You know, if you don't do this, there's a consequence. There are consequences. Now the truth of the matter is the primary consequence is that at that moment you're cut off. There's no more than that. There's no more punishment than that. There's no more feeling alienated, strayed than that. Right. But that's also true. You can't say to someone, I can't talk to you right now. Mm. Now, on the one hand, if that's the person who's the closest person to in your life, on the one hand, there's a moment of truth that you can't talk to that person. But there's also a truth that that you can't talk to that person. There is that break. There is that gap. That doesn't go away. But it doesn't mean it's not God's will. Right? Imagine a, a relationship that you had to be on your best behavior all the time. You know, at a, at a Badekin that I did for, actually for my Smicha Chavuta, I was at this wonderful moment where I, you think that you're giving someone a blessing, but everyone hears it as a curse. He was like, great, I thought I was in, uh, in Sleeping Beauty when the Wicked Witch came up and she, right, and everyone goes like, <laughs> So during the Badekin, he's about to cover her face and she's about to give him a talit, which is, they're both elements of covering for each other. Um, and I said, I bless you both to always have secrets from each other. And everyone like, what is that? I was like, oh. like now her true feelings came out. <laughs> so when everyone caught their breath, I said, because if you think that you know everything about each other, you'll stop talking to each other. I said, as long as there's something about each other that you think that you don't know, you'll continue in dialogue. But the minute you think you know everything about each other, you'll stop talking to each other. So I bless you to always have secrets from each other. Okay, let's, let's turn our pages. I'll let you know whether I'm going to answer or not. Okay. Uh, the, the, the issue of refining oneself to a point where one will more easily rather than less easily connect to God's will to you. Right. Well, there will be guidelines at different points throughout the book to how we can, uh, how we can fine-tune our hearing. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And, th- and I think that the more we ask these questions, the more also we can allow ourselves to learn to hear. Okay? Another venue of, uh, to think about in this realm of tefillah and the Meashilach is actually um, 
praying for, praying for something. And here, the question isn't whether or not we can pray for something, right? I think that in sources two, three, four, um, that's not so much the question of whether you can pray for something, but the question is, um, number one, is it right to pray for it? And number two, there was a question that was posed yesterday, well, what happens when God doesn't answer? <laughs> so, um, and here he would say that the that. The question is a question of tone. And is that prayer a demand or a surrender? And what he's going to ask us is, again, to live a dichotomy between demanding and surrendering. Because on the one hand, what he's asking of us in these teachings, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, um, I'll get to five in a moment, is to say, master the world, this is what I want. But I want it if this is right for me. So I'm stating my intention. But only if this is ultimately right for me. So on the one hand, there's a demand but there's the music of the demand is surrender. Because the truth of the matter is, I only know my life based on what I know of it. I can only look at it based on what I've lived and what I've experienced and what's become available to me in the pool of information that I have. But that's not the totality of who I am. The Apiasetz Narebbe, he says, on, uh, in, a, in a teaching of his of, uh, on Shavuot, um, of 1929, he teaches that when you hand your life over to God, someone who serves God with his holy intent, becomes someone that he can't even imagine. Our life avails us to part of who we are. Our experiences avail us to parts of who we are that without that experience, we would never know. If 10 years ago you said to me that I would be living in Los Angeles, I would tell you, see a psychiatrist. You have no sense of reality. For the life that I lived, for how I knew myself, for what I knew life was, there was no life, there was no way to wake up in the morning outside of Yerushalayim. There wasn't. And the master of the world to make sure that I understood like who's, who's calling the shots here, right, completely. The apartment that I live in, which is a lovely apartment, apartment, it is six buildings into Beverly Hills. So my return address has to be Beverly Hills. It's like not bad enough that you take me out of Yerushalayim. It's like not bad enough that you plant me on the West Coast. Not bad enough it's Los Angeles. But when I pay my electric bill, Right? That's why I got stickers, so I don't have to write it. <laughs> I can just stick it and move on. Right? I like, six buildings? Like, this building, it couldn't be on the other side of the street? Like, it couldn't be six buildings into Los Angeles? Six buildings. So that's how I know the master role says it. So if you ever, ten years ago, ever said you would be paying rent on an apartment in Beverly Hills, 
I would say, I don't know what universe you live in, but we clearly don't share a reality. <laughs> That's the truth. Now, I can tell you, though, when I get on a plane from the East Coast and I don't end up, I don't end up landing in Tel Aviv, my heart breaks. I don't have a reality of it. I have a life of it. I don't have a reality of it. I know that my work now is in Los Angeles. So I say to the master of the world, I want to wake up every day in Yerushalayim. If that's where I'm meant to wake up, I'm telling you. Every day, I'm telling you, this is not my plan. And I'm telling you that I pray every day to wake up in Yerushalayim. And not because I don't have a reality that, I know that my body's going to wake up in Los Angeles, but because I have an intent that I'm holding. And I also know that, that the master of the world will help me find my way back to Yerushalayim when the time to make my way back to Yerushalayim is the time. This is a struggle. So it's about a demand that's seasoned. The music of it is surrender. The music of it is servitude. The music of it is devotional. And why? Because the truth of the matter is, in section number five, the underlying lines Tefillah is where God shines upon us, where we cannot reach. Now this phrase, that his hands did not reach, is a crucial, is a crucial phrase. Okay, line, section number five, line number five. Why is it crucial? Because you'll find this phrase, you'll find the opposite of this phrase throughout the Rambam, for example in different elements, both of philosophy and of halakha. Makom shiadomagat, where one's hand can reach. So for example, if you look at um, the laws of the halachot of cleaning for Pesach, where you have to check for chametz and where not. You don't have to check for the places that are out beyond your reach. Right? Your chiyuv is only makom shiadomagat. The, the realm of where your hand can reach. So those top shelves, those top cabinets that you never open, right? You don't have to clean them for Pesach. Because there is no, because they're out of your realm. They're out of your accessibility. They're out of your reach. Right? The Rambam in Hilchot Me'ilai and his laws of actually of um, defying objects that were sanctified to the Mikdash will say that we are asked to, we are, we are demanded to come to a perception of God ad makom, to the best of one's ability. Right? That is the demand. And there he says, he actually uses actually um, the phrase, if I'm not wrong, to the best of their ability. And, he says, and where you don't understand God, that's when you stop making, that's where you stop. He says, don't make stories about God. Don't heap Concepts on God. Don't make that's idolatry in some way. Don't you know? I said to my students, like, why would you? Why would I want to limit God beyond? Why would I want to limit God's intervention in my life? If I tell God this is what I want and that's it, like, I know it, what we know what our life has has down the road tomorrow, how it's going to unfold. Why limit our life? to what it is that I have a concept of right now. 
And tefillah, he says, raises us to that keter, that crown, a place that we can't reach. Prayer is our a possibility, our invitation to allow God to reveal God's self in ways that transcend who we are, that transcend what we know about ourselves, that transcend a tomorrow that we can portray. Because it can be so much greater. It can be so much more miraculous. It can be so much other. It can be so much unknown. And he would tell us, right, that also if God, if God doesn't answer, then that's where the trust comes in. The trust comes in to understand that there's a reason for that. And I may not know now, but the time will come when I will know. Or I may never know. And that's also true. And that's also true. Seven and eight offer us two challenges. Seven is a challenge. I'm going to just read these few lines that are underlined. Kimitzat hateva. That based on our nature, human nature is... When we are being crunched, when our style is being challenged, when we are suffering, when we are in the not knowing, right? Our heart will will wake, awaken to prayer. And when we are comfortable, our heart does not awaken for prayer. He says that's the human condition, and I think what he's offering here is. And this is what Abba bin Yamin is, is, feels challenged about. Right? Two things I was sorry about. I'm just reading the source that he's relating to. One is, And mitah here, my bed, that my prayer should be before my bed. My bed is like where I rest, where I'm comfortable. So what he's praying is to not lose the practice of praying prayers of gratitude. Right? Which is why I came, I'll come back for a moment to the comment I made in the beginning, which is, um, if you don't have that sense of prayer, right, and if it's because, God forbid, God's not there, right, then I would say, like with the Merglim, then I would say, no matter what, they should have prayed. And what we don't know about the story is what would have happened had they prayed. Right, that's the truth. We don't know what would have happened if they prayed. So, even not, I would say pray. And then the other option I gave was, and if, if it's because you feel that you're so much in the light that there's no need to pray, I would say, well, that begs a tefillah todaya. That begs a prayer of gratitude. So this is number one, is to say that there is no place which is vacant from the possibility of prayer. There is no place that is void of God's revelation. There is no place that we cannot invite God in or feel invited by God. And in the same way, I'm taking about three minutes of your time. I have 12. In the same way, line, uh, section number eight, one of my favorite teachings in the Meshidoch in terms of how to live our lives. The pasuk is lota shoket re'echa. Do not wrong your, or oppress your neighbor. Now, Oshik is primarily here in the Pasuk, clearly, has to do with monetary issues. 
but what he's going to say is, anything good that you can do for your friend, and you do not do for them, you're wronging them. Now, Oshik is something that the per- other person has coming to them by right. So any good thing that we could do for someone else, they have a right to that goodness that we can avail them of. And if we don't, we're oppressing them. And if we don't get the message, and even a prayer. And even a prayer that we could pray for someone else and don't, we are shortchanging them. We are oppressing them. Meaning to say that prayer will, is that which avails us to always be in a place of service. There is never a situation in which we can't do something. It may be prayer. It may not be in the practical realm, but we know that as our words come out of our mouth, they have wings. And they fly, and they do things, and they create vessels to hold intention. So there is never a situation in which you can't do something. And I'll take it one step even further. I love teaching this to my students because I tell them, I said, I've actually never done um, chaplaincy work. I haven't. Um, but I say to them, bring, have this teaching in your pocket. Why? So as you walk into a room and someone says, God forbid, you know, what can I do now? There's nothing I can do. You know, I'm just laying here. I'm in bed rest for three months, just laying here. There's nothing I can do. I said, just pull out a list of people for them to pray for. As long as your mind is moving, as long as your lips are moving, there's something you can do. And I'd say, on the contrary, you're going to lie here for, for all day? Like, yeah, I got work for you. Here, these people need to be prayed for. No matter what your situation is, no matter what your condition is, no matter what your state is, there's something that we can be doing for each other. And that is shaking the heavens. And that is praying. So, this practice is there for us for every moment. And the last piece is I want to say that there's one other, there, there's one other partner in prayer. And that's the master of the world. That's the Ribbono Sholam. And this is where I want to conclude. Line number 12 through 14, section number 9. It's taken from, it's missing. It says Parashat and there's a blank there. It's Bechukotai. I'm sorry. I'm wondering what happened in my mind at that moment. Where I went. It says the following. Okay, last page, page number 5, source number 9. Vigam, and also, because remember, in Bechukotai Telechu, God Right, that is, we don't know. We can observe all the Shulchan Aruch. We don't know if we actually got it. And then the other option is Vigam, and also Lishon Im Hu Lishon Tfilah. If is prayer. It's like prayer. If. The master of the world, seemingly, supposedly, Kivyachol. Always a word of caution that Kivyachol when talking about the divine. That seemingly God also prays. What is, what is God's prayer? I pray that you walk in my statutes and as you're doing that, you will align yourself with the depth of my will. So, prayer for the Me'ashilach is the way that God reveals himself down here, but also it's the way that we get a peek into what's happening up there. Right? That the master of the world, we should know, is praying on our behalf, praying for us. The master of the world is praying to be understood. 
The master of the world is praying to be revealed. The master of the world is praying to be in relationship. Is praying to be perceived and conceived and partnered with in this world. I pray, God, God prays. I pray that you walk in my statutes and you align yourself with the depth of my will. So our prayer for the Meshadoch is not only a way that God reveals God's self through our prayer, but it's a way that God reveals God's self through God's prayer. We need a closing prayer for today. A closing prayer.